Jesus, this was a mighty moment in your ministry with Zacchaeus, and we ask that you'd open it to us this morning. Teach us what it means and how you want us to respond. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to keep going with the story of Zacchaeus. And uh, as I said to the children, Zacchaeus loved money. He loved money. Um, But with you guys, I'm going to give that love its proper name. Um, Zacchaeus' love of money was a form of idolatry. Okay? And uh, it's not the kind of idolatry where someone makes a statue and bows down in front of it, like the kind of idolatry that we read about in Isaiah 44. But that kind of idolatry had been banished from Israel by the first century. Nobody would have done that or thought about doing that. But that didn't mean that there wasn't any more idolatry. Because people's hearts still loved created things more than God the Creator. And they desired them, and they chased after them, and even looked to them for help and deliverance. Just like the people in Isaiah 44 looked to the block of wood and said, deliver us. People found other things for their hearts to latch onto. And that's the kind of idolatry that Zacchaeus had. It's the kind of idolatry that's a lot more familiar to us. So what we're looking at in the story of Zacchaeus is a story of mighty deliverance from idolatry. A man who loves and idolizes money does a sudden and dramatic about-face. He turns away from his idols to serve the living God. So his story teaches us, first, what it looks like to be stuck in idolatry. Second, what it feels like to be released from idolatry. And third, what happens to the idols after a person is released So first, what does it look like to be stuck in idolatry? So Zacchaeus made an idol out of money. And we know that because he had chosen to take the job of chief tax collector. Now, I'm not trying to say that tax collecting is always bad. Uh, I've got nothing against Doris Malloy. She's a a Leon County tax collector. She's a fine, upstanding woman. Um, She provides a noble and valuable public service, and her offices run like clockwork. (laughs) But when when we think about the Roman Empire, their tax system was totally different. The way they set it up was way different, and it was a haven for thieves and scoundrels. So, here's how it works. Some of you have heard me explain this before, but it's so important for the story of Zacchaeus that you're going to hear it again. So here's what the Romans did. Whenever they conquered new territory, of course, the new towns and villages were going to have to pay taxes. They needed to line Caesar's coffers. But instead of setting up a Roman official to be the tax collector, the Roman Empire came up with a scheme that was so mischievous that it was worthy of the greatest um, uh, villain, the greatest criminal mastermind. Okay? So what they did is they went into the towns and villages And they advertised from among the local population for the job of chief tax collector. And there was only one question in the job interview. And the question was, how much money can you get out of this town in a year? And very simply, they gave the job to whoever had the highest number. right? And then here were the rules. That you would get a Roman bodyguard to protect you as you collected taxes. 
and you could extract money from your friends and neighbors by any means you chose. And here's the kicker. Whatever tax money you collected above the number that you'd quoted, you got to keep. All right? So you can see that this scheme was a magnet for all of the uh, thieves and scoundrels, the sleaziest people in any town or village, the people who were willing to sell out on their whole community um, to serve Rome in order to make a fast buck. So you can imagine how much the, the town people and the villagers hated the chief tax collector. So the best tax collectors in this system were the tax collectors that knew people's pressure points, and they made skillful use of threats and violence. And Zacchaeus was good at his job, because Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was rich. And Zacchaeus himself confesses to Jesus at the end of the story that he's been defrauding people. His name, Zacchaeus, means clean or innocent. <laughs> but the other tax collectors who worked for him must have had a pretty good laugh at that. Because that's a huge irony. So with his small stature and his mafia personality, we might imagine Zacchaeus being played in the movie by someone like Danny DeVito. <laughs> so... Zacchaeus's job and Zacchaeus's wealth through that job are enough to tell us that nothing mattered to him more than money. He idolized money. Money was his god. And in this short little story, we can also see the fruit of that idolatry in his life. Zacchaeus's choice to sell out his neighbors and get rich at their expense made Zacchaeus a social outcast. As you might expect, nobody wanted to be his friend or even be seen talking to him. So Zacchaeus is a lonely figure in Jericho, isn't he? In verse 3, the crowd squeezes him out so that he can't get near to Jesus. And in verse 7, they grumble about him and call him a sinner. His love of money had cost him dearly. The fruit of his idolatry was isolation and loneliness. And I think what we see in Zacchaeus is an extreme example of a general rule. The rule that the fruit of the love of money is always loneliness. Because if I love money, and I chase after it, and I get more and more of it, then I have to worry about keeping hold of it. And I have to be careful who my friends are, and it's hard for me to trust people. So I isolate myself. I buy large properties, and I fence them off, and I leave the neighborhoods and communities where people crowd together. And so even if I'm not a social outcast like a tax collector, my money indeed isolates me from other people because I love it too much and I end up alone with it, just like Zacchaeus did. And it's not just money, I think. All idolatry leads to loneliness. If I love power, then other people become tools to serve me and challenges to be overcome until I end up alone. Or if I love sex, then my uncontrolled desires lead me to behave in ways that fill me with shame so that I seek out the shadows and hide from other people until I end up alone. Or if I love addictive substances, then I'm always hiding, seeking solitude to indulge in my addiction until I end up alone. Or if I love myself, 
my own strengths and achievements, or my physical beauty, or my intelligence. If I am my own God and I serve myself and help myself until I can no longer appreciate or understand the good in anybody else, then I make myself impossible for my friends to love, and I end up alone. And there are plenty of other idols for us to worship, but I'm pretty sure if we think through it, we'll find that in every case, the idolatry leads to loneliness. Now, of course, I'm not trying to say that idolatry is the only cause of loneliness, that any time we feel lonely, it must be because we're worshipping some false god. No, there's plenty of reasons to feel lonely. But I am saying that loneliness is always a fruit of idolatry, that the experience of Zacchaeus in this story isn't the exception, but the rule. And it makes sense, right? Because the true and living God is the only source of love and therefore the only glue for community. And God's greatest enemy, Satan, the father of lies, is the one who set up every idol, every counterfeit God for us to worship, to steal worship away from the true God. And Satan wants to stamp out love and community wherever he finds it. There is no better result for him than people isolated and separated and alone. So it's little wonder that he makes loneliness the end result of idolatry. Zacchaeus realized this too late, but by that point he was stuck with his choice. We see in his behavior throughout this passage that he was ready to make a different choice. He discovered that his money didn't satisfy him, and he also wanted to be reconciled with God and with his community but he was stuck. He climbed into bed with the Romans and he burned his bridges with the people of Jericho and there was no way back for him. And that too is a characteristic of idolatry, that it takes us captive. We find ourselves stuck in it, or at least we feel stuck in it, so that even if we realize we've made a bad choice, we can't see how to unmake it. And we realize that we've become a prisoner to the idol that we chose. So that's what it looks like to be stuck in idolatry. And now second, what does it feel like to be released from idolatry? Zacchaeus had a strong desire to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus must have heard about Jesus and known some of the stories that people were telling about him. About what he could do and about who he claimed to be. But Zacchaeus had never seen Jesus for himself. And now here was Jesus in his own city. And Zacchaeus wasn't going to miss the chance to see him. The way that Zacchaeus behaved shows an eagerness that borders on desperation. We imagine him jumping up and down behind the people in the crowd. And then running ahead and scrambling up a tree. Imagine if one of our own public figures, like Governor Scott, behaved like this, climbing up a tree so he could watch a parade. It's inappropriate and embarrassing. So what Zacchaeus does here either shows that he long ago abandoned all hope of honor from his fellow citizens, or that he's unusually desperate to see Jesus for himself. But it's probably both. The tree that Zacchaeus climbed was an African sycamore. 
And if you're a tree person, then it's not the same as an American sycamore. So the African sycamore is genus Ficus sycamorus. <laughs> and it's a relative of the fig tree, okay? It produces edible figs. And the uh, American sycamore is a totally different species. It's uh, Platinus occidentalis. <laughs> and they grow very tall. The uh, African sycamore has got a low spreading branches, so even for a short guy, it's very easy to climb. Um, and they live a very long time. So if you go to Jericho today, they've actually taken a sycamore tree and they've put a fence around it, and there's a plaque saying that this is the sycamore tree that Zacchaeus actually climbed. And I don't know whether it is or not, but the tree is old enough to actually be the tree that Zacchaeus found it. It's over 2,000 years old. Um, anyway, it was a tree like that that Zacchaeus climbed because he wanted to see Jesus so badly. So as he sat there in the tree, was he planning to call out? Did he want to say anything to this man? Was he plodding in the tree what he was going to say and rehearsing it through in his head? And if Jesus had walked by underneath without looking up, would Zacchaeus have had the nerve to speak up? Or would he have let Jesus pass by beneath him and out of his life forever? We don't know what would have happened because it was Jesus who took the initiative. Verse 5 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up. And this is the moment of tension in this story. So imagine that you haven't heard it a hundred times before, and you're hearing it for the first time, and you're sitting by a great big fire at night, and a storyteller is telling this story as the sparks fly upward. And the storyteller pauses here at this dramatic moment. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Jesus looked up and he saw the chief tax collector of Jericho sitting in a tree. One of the chief enemies of God and God's people. There's Jesus on the ground, surrounded by a noisy crowd, praised and applauded and celebrated and popular. And there's Zacchaeus, alone, unpopular, friendless, so outcast that he had to climb a tree. What would happen next? Would Zacchaeus dare to speak? Would Jesus ignore him and carry on his way? Would Jesus curse him for his wickedness and warn the people around him? See, look up in that tree. There's the man who sold you for a fast buck. That's where you end up if you love money. See the man who turned to idols. Because that's what Zacchaeus deserved, right? But Jesus did speak to him and he said something quite different. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now notice in the story that this is the only line that Jesus speaks before the very end. And it's the only thing that he does. This sentence is everything Zacchaeus needed for a new life. And it's the turning point of his whole life story. That Jesus gave him a second chance. Jesus gave him a name and a command and a welcome. Right? So he gave him a name. Zacchaeus, I know you. I see you. I'm not ignorant of all the wicked things you've done. He gave him a command, hurry and come down. 
Let me tell you what to do from here. Follow me. Let me lead you. I can show you the way out of your trouble. Jesus took charge of Zacchaeus. And third, he gave him a welcome. I must stay at your house today. So Jesus invited himself over, but really it was Jesus who did the welcoming. Because if our favorite celebrity came to us and said, I'm coming to dinner at your house tonight, that's not an imposition. That's an honor. And Zacchaeus treated it like the honor it was and like the second chance it was. He hurried down. He obeyed exactly what Jesus commanded. So Jesus said, hurry and come down. And Luke is careful to repeat those two verbs when he, when he says what Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus hurried and came down. He obeyed quickly and immediately and carefully. And with that moment of quick obedience, he'd already switched his allegiance, hadn't he? He'd already cast away his idols and turned to serve the living God. It was done just like that. No second thoughts. And so right away, Zacchaeus was filled with joy. He received Jesus into his house joyfully. Now that word joy is an important word for Luke. Joy is a major theme in Luke's gospel, but Luke uses the word very carefully. So joy is the feeling that people only get when they experience the power and the purposes of God at work in their own lives. Okay, I'll say that again. Joy is a feeling that people only get when they experience the power and purposes of God at work in their own lives. So Luke's gospel opens with a whole lot of joy surrounding Jesus' birth. Lots of verses we've heard in the last few weeks. And the gospel closes on a note of joy. The last line of Luke's gospel is, And the disciples worshipped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. But here for the last year or so, we've been in the middle of Luke's gospel um, and hearing the teachings while Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. And in this section, there really is quite little joy. Lots of hard and difficult teachings. Few people rejoicing. Until here, we come to Jericho, just before Jesus reaches Jerusalem, and Zacchaeus experiences the power of God at work in his own life, and he is filled with joy. It's the joy that comes with the power of God to escape an oppressive idol, the power to reconcile with God and reunite with the community to end loneliness. Idolatry is a prison, and people who fall into it are taken captive. But Jesus has the power to set the captives free. Amen? Amen. Now finally, what happens to the idols after people are released? Without any apparent prompting from Jesus, Zacchaeus stood up and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Look how completely Zacchaeus changed his allegiance. He called Jesus Lord. Jesus is master now, not his old idol of money. And so what happens to the idol? It's smashed. It's spurned, hated, destroyed. There's only space in our hearts for one God. Jesus will not share his throne with anyone or anything. There's only one God who brings freedom. And if we choose him, then all our idols must be completely destroyed. And Zacchaeus 
seems to have known that because he trampled on his idol with joy and dancing. Half my wealth, it's gone. Let, let me do some good for a change. And more than that, I'll keep on paying four times anything that I stole from anyone. These promises were radical, far more radical than anything the Pharisees would have recommended in their careful shrewdness. The Pharisees said, never give away more than 20% of your wealth. That's not wise. And they said that paying back four times for a theft, that's not necessary, except in very special circumstances. But it is what the law commanded. Exodus 22, verse 1. You will pay back four or five times for a theft. So Zacchaeus' new allegiance to Jesus also brought a new concern for God's law. He was coming back home to the God of his ancestors, proving, as Jesus said, that he also was a son of Abraham. The measures that Zacchaeus promised to Jesus would certainly have cost Zacchaeus a severe downgrade in his lifestyle. He was planning a nosedive down the Forbes list. <laughs> Sell the house, sack the servants, cancel the standing order for champagne and caviar. This was going to be a radical new life for him. But he was so happy about it. And Jesus too was happy. We can imagine Jesus laughing with delight and amazement when he said, today salvation has come to this house. This was the very reason Jesus came to earth. The reason he put up with the mud and the sweat and the toil of life on earth. So that he could seek and save the lost. So that he could find people like Zacchaeus and free them from their captivity and bring them salvation. This was a great day for Jesus. It was a gift from his father before he went up to the cross. So Jesus went to Jericho and he plucked from a fig tree in Jericho an amazing piece of fruit. A hopeless sinner, the chief tax collector. And Jesus freed him to live up to his name, clean and innocent. And if Zacchaeus could be saved to dance on his broken idols, then was anyone on earth out of reach? The message worked, and the mission would succeed. And I suspect that that rich harvest of Zacchaeus plucked from a fig tree in Jericho would have comforted and sustained Jesus as he went up to Jerusalem and found the fig tree there barren. So we see in the life of Zacchaeus what it looks like to be stuck in idolatry, what it feels like to be released from idolatry, and what happens to the idols after people are released. So now what about us? What are we doing about our idols? We can confess together that all of us have some sort of idol that competes with God for our attention and devotion. So for Zacchaeus it was money, and we might be tempted to worship money, but there are lots of other idols in our culture. Here are some of them. Sex, romance, comfort, security, food, drugs, alcohol, pleasure, power, self-image, autonomy, success, 
and professional status. None of these things are necessarily bad in themselves, but they can all become things that we desire and serve to the point of worship. And I strongly suspect that each one of us in this room struggles mightily with at least one of these idols. And if we're not really sure what our idols are, then it's important for our long-term relationship with God that we find out. We need to give them their proper name and recognize when they try to influence us. So, an idol is something that's captivated our interest, something we desire, something that we feel will solve our problems and satisfy our emptiness, and something we might even think will save us. Isaiah 44, deliver us. So we can identify our idols by what we think about as we lie down to go to sleep at night, and as we wake up in the morning. What are our thoughts and imaginings? What fantasies and daydreams do we have? And we can try to fill in this blank. If, if everything went wrong and my God abandoned me, at least I'd still have what? The way we fill in that blank is probably a thing that we're tempted to idolize. Or what do we hide? What do we keep in a secret store? deep in the shadows and away from the light? Or what is it that motivates our decisions? Is it purely to serve and please God? What else drives us? If we turn over these rocks, then underneath we're likely to find our idols lurking. So having identified and named our own idols, we need to be honest about what sort of hold they have on us. So are we in the place of Zacchaeus at the beginning of the story? where they're holding us captive? Or have we smashed them like he did by the end? Or are they worming their way back into our hearts? So perhaps you're coming to realize that you've devoted much of your life to some sort of idol. And like Zacchaeus, you're ready to leave it behind. You're finding it unsatisfying, constantly disappointing, and it leaves you lonely and unfulfilled. You've realized that Isaiah 44 applies to you and you're ready to say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? But you feel stuck and you feel like you've sold your soul. You've gone too far to turn back now and the bridges behind you are burned. Today Jesus stands at your door and knocks. And he invites himself in for dinner. Whether or not you've been seeking him, he's been seeking you. And he sets on your table the opportunity to switch your allegiance. Just like Zacchaeus did. A radical break from the past. And a new life with him. Jesus will lead you out of the idolatry. He'll tell you what to do next. He'll show you the way out. And he'll take his seat on the throne of your heart crowding out the idols on the condition that you clear that seat for him. You're not stuck because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then if you've accepted Jesus, have you smashed your idols like Zacchaeus did? Have you broken them to pieces? 
I think few of us are as determined and wholehearted as Zacchaeus was. We're reluctant to smash. Instead, we'd rather just put the idol away in a drawer over here or bury it in a closet over here. And we try to convince Jesus that it's gone, that we've gotten rid of it, but we peek at it from time to time. What would it look like to smash it? When I was in college, I had a computer in my room and I fell into looking at certain pictures on the internet. The idol of lust captivated my attention and desire. And it became an idol for me. It affected my life and decisions. It led me to spend more time alone in my room and to hide from my Christian community and to seek the shadows and stay out of the light. And the shame of it tortured my soul. And Jesus showed me that my desires had torn my obedience and worship away from him. That this was an idol and it needed to be smashed. And this was in the days before Wi-Fi was everywhere. So my internet signal was coming in through an Ethernet cable. Some of you might remember those. So I ripped out that Ethernet cable. And I gave it to a friend. And I told him why I needed him to take it and to keep it. And I went to the library to use the internet when I needed to. Which was deeply inconvenient but the idol needed to be smashed. I had a friend at the same time who had a similar problem with the magazine covers on the top shelf of the local convenience store. And my friend decided that he just wouldn't go into that store for any reason. He would walk twice as far to the next nearest store so that he wouldn't have to go in there so that the idol would be smashed. So are your idols still in the drawer? Or are they smashed? If your job is an idol, if it's leading you into sin, are you ready to leave your job? Or at least radically change the way you do it? If your dating relationship is an idol, if you know that it's wrong, and it's leading you to seek the shadows and hide from the light, are you ready to break it off permanently and irrevocably? If you've made an idol out of food, or alcohol, or prescription, or recreational drugs, or video games, or romantic novels, are you ready to go home today and clear whatever it is out of your house? Get rid of it. Empty the cupboards. Clear off the shelves. Throw every trace of it in the garbage. Pour it down the sink. Even the secret stores that you keep only for emergencies. Will you smash? Will you abandon your idol completely and destroy it and dance on the pieces of it and make no plans to ever go back to it? Because Jesus will not share the throne of your heart with anyone or anything. And all those idols are shame and disappointment and loneliness and death. Only one God is truly worthy of our worship. And Zacchaeus knew him the moment he saw him. Run to him. Smash the rest. And know that the smashing will mean joy for you and joy for Jesus. Now I just have one short final word of warning. I suspect that many of us have smashed our idols in the past only to find them creep back in later. 
If something has captivated our attention once, it probably always has some sort of hook in us. And like Lord Voldemort in Harry Potter, it can piece itself back together and worm its way back to power. Our problem is that after a few years of freedom from an idol, after a few years out of captivity, we forget why the idol was really that bad. What all the shame and the hiding felt like. So when it comes back to us appealing for a second chance, we might just compromise and give it another go. The dog returns to its own vomit, says the scripture. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So as you smash your idols, don't forget their names. Record their crimes, that you may never later take pity on them. The wise alcoholic who's given up the bottle knows that he may never pick it up again. That his vulnerability remains. That he will never cease to be an addict. And so it is with all of us who have fallen prey to any form of idolatry. That particular thing that captivated us once could captivate us again. It remains in us as a weak spot, as a vulnerability. But Jesus gives us the power not only to get clean, but also to stay clean. So little children, keep yourselves from idols.